0: fall, flood, dispersion, and then a family, going from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. And that family was begun with a man by the name of Abraham, and there God set his attention on a people through whom to accomplish his purposes. All of the Old Testament history took us up to about 400 years prior to the New Testament. And when you think about the close of the Old Testament, where every character was a character that left us without hope for the turn. Without hope for the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. All the genealogies recording all of the people who had lived as descendants of Adam and Eve. None had brought an end to the curse. None had crushed the head of the snake. There was the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals were slaughtered day after day, week after week, year after year to allow people to interact with the Holy God, but never bringing a finality of forgiveness of sin. There was, of course, the law with all of its stipulations. It was a good law that God gave to his people, that they might know him, that their lives might be regulated according to his purposes. And yet the fundamental problem of the law was not the law itself, but the sinners under it. Who could not meet the law's demands? Who had broken it and transgressed it? And God ceased to speak. The Old Testament closed. And there were no prophets. There were no more books. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a period of time, which is part of the times of the Gentiles that the prophet Daniel spoke about. Israel had been removed from the land into captivity, brought back into the land in partiality, and always under the thumb of other nations. After the Babylonians, it was the Medes and the Persians, And then it was Alexander the Great and the mighty Greek empire that took over the ancient world. And the Greeks were pagan idolaters. They were the ones who Greekified the Middle East. They were the ones that brought the culture of idolatry to Israel in a new brand of compromise. Those who were under the thumb of the Grecian Empire had to decide, do we remain pure and do we uphold the Old Testament or when in Greece, do as the Grecians? And in large part, they compromised. In fact, the Levitical priesthood was sacrificed. Uh, Other people who were put into leadership were those who were in league with the overlords. And when the Greeks gave way to the Roman Empire... That trend simply continued. By the time you get to the New Testament, the Romans are in charge. Uh, The Greek language is still the universal language. And the nation of Israel is without prophet, without spokesman for God, and faithless. There were, of course, a few who were looking for Messiah... But for the most part, they were confused with political revolts and the maintenance of power and a holding on to traditions. the time was ripe for Messiah to come. The Greek language became a wonderful platform for Messiah's message to go around the world the synagogues of the diaspora or the dispersion allowed for the word of god to have a place in many cities outside of israel but when messiah came tragically he was unrecognized and rejected by the nation he came to we find ourselves in the book of matthew in the opening of the new testament i thought maybe we would render 400 silent seconds in honor of the 400 silent years, but the anticipation has been too great. 4,000 years of anticipation since the fall, 400 years since God has spoken, and so we will open our New Testament this evening and read Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This book is fascinating. It begins with a title and a genealogy. Read with me, Matthew one one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we have a, a series of titles for this baby who would be born of a virgin. And the titles are significant. This is Jesus, the man, the baby. He is Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, the expected one. He is the son of David in the lineage of the royal line. And the son of Abraham. Again, going all the way back to that time in Genesis 12 when God began his work with a people and a lineage. And tracing that lineage all the way down to this Jesus. I want you to see the bookends of the book of Matthew that that are going to help us understand what is the purpose for Matthew's writing. He is, of course, an eyewitness to the life and death and resurrection and commission of Jesus He is one who knew Jesus personally, was a disciple of Jesus. But when he sits down to write this gospel, 55 to 60 AD, by the way, the early church fathers attested to this being the first one written. I subscribe to that view. He writes with a purpose, and and his purpose, I think, can be seen by the bookends that we see in the first chapter and the last chapter. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. Who is this Jesus Who is this Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Interesting name for a baby. Interesting name for a a human being. And nothing more fitting for the one who is in fact God in the flesh chapter 1, verse 23, we have this one who is called God with us. And the book ends in Matthew 28, 20, in that great commission, with this promise from that very child. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This one who is called God with us came and lived and taught and died and rose again And before he ascended back to the Father, he commissioned his followers, tiny little group of followers, that they would take his message to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age. And his promise is, I will be with you. God with us will be with us. I believe Matthew wrote his gospel primarily to a Jewish Christian audience in order to get them to understand the credentials of Messiah so as to join in his great commission. That is Matthew's purpose. He wants to enlist Jewish Christians, and we know that he's writing to Jewish Christians because the predominance of ascriptions to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Over and over again, he is proving to his readers that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited one the Old Testament promised. And when he gives his commission... He gives his commission to disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And so this first generation of mostly Jewish Christians trusting their Old Testament and believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament would now be the ones who take the gospel in its early stages out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, even to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We'll see that theme all the way through this book. It would be important for us to not look at the gospel of Matthew merely as literary critics or as historians, but as disciples. And we must get this same message that Matthew wants us to convey, that Jesus is the one. He is the one worth proclaiming. He is the one that meets all the credentials of all of redemptive history for the one who would save us from our sins. And it is he who must be proclaimed. So we can't leave from this evening without getting Matthew's point and following Jesus' commission. My hope this evening is that uh, this fresh look at Jesus will compel us to be his heralds, to tell the world about him. We think through the Gospel of Matthew, we. We need to understand an overarching theme has to do with Jesus as king. Uh, We'll look at that. But to build up to Jesus as king, we want to see the ways that Matthew identifies this one. Uh, Who is it that uh, Jesus, this baby Jesus, is? He's identified with a number of titles, a number of credentials. It begins in the first verse. He is, first of all, uh, Messiah. Notice that in verse one of chapter one, he is the Messiah. What is Messiah? The the Greek word is Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. That's his title. Uh, the Hebrew word is Messiah, and that has something to do with the Anointed One. And it had the expectation of the one who was specially selected by God to bring about His promises. It's interesting in the intertestamental period, the Jews had developed a theology of Messiah that identified the son of David with the anointed one or the Messiah and followed his lineage through David's royal line. That is exactly what we find here. Jesus is that one. He is the Messiah and he is called here son of David and son of Abraham. Both of these are important. Both of these line up Jesus' claim as king of Israel because he he comes from Abraham's line uh, where God promised he would be a blessing to all the nations. And it comes through David's line in 2 Samuel 7 where David's line is promised the throne. Notice in chapter 1, verse 23, he is also called Emmanuel. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, that the virgin would be with child, and that his name would be called God with us. In chapter 2, he is identified as king in several interesting ways. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He is identified here as king of the Jews. And interestingly, not by the nation to which he came, but by outsiders, by Gentiles. This becomes an important part of Matthew's theme. You're going to see a number of Gentiles included in Matthew's story for a very specific purpose. And if you think about what it would mean to have been a Jew believing in Messiah with all the racial tension that existed to go outside of your own circles and see God's grace extended to the nation's would be a hard pill to swallow. And yet it is exactly what Jesus commissions his disciples at the end with. So at the very beginning, we understand that the first people to recognize him as king of the Jews are these magi from the east. Uh, Where do they come from? In all likelihood, uh, they are the descendants, theologically, of Daniel's ministry in Babylon. That is what Daniel taught about the coming Messiah. Prophesying his arrival in Jerusalem as king down to the very day was taught when Daniel was head of the Magi in Babylon. If they would have held on to these promises, if they would have passed them down and taught their disciples these things, they could have used Daniel's prophecy like a clock to predict the timing of Jesus' arrival. It seems like that's what they're doing here. They've been watching the prophecies, and God provides them a star. They show up, and they show up for the king. Look at chapter 21. Here we have the king's presentation. He enters into Jerusalem in chapter 21. And Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A fulfillment of Isaiah sixty-two eleven and of Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, both of which predicted that salvation would come to Israel and that it would come through a king. Jesus is, of course, the king that fulfills these things. In Matthew 3.17, we get a further identification of Jesus. He is Son of God. This is at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptizer. Verse 17 says, Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here, God from the heavens announces who this one is. He is Son of God. In chapter 3, verse 3, we see him called Lord. And and this happens throughout the book of Matthew. And Matthew uses the word Lord to describe, at times, a superior, someone who is higher in rank than you. Uh, At other times, it's used of of Yahweh. In fact, in chapter 3, the the prophecy that's made there is, goes all the way back to Isaiah's prophecy where Yahweh is described, and Jesus is the recipient or the fulfillment of that prophecy. So the, even the word Lord is a, a reference not only to his superior rank, but in some texts, a reference to his deity. He is called teacher. He is called teacher by non-disciples in chapter 8. Maybe people that want to give some sort of worldly honor Teacher, what do you think about my question? In the book of Matthew, he's not called teacher by his disciples, but he is called teacher by himself in chapter 10. He refers to himself that way. And then the title Son of Man comes up many times. He is the Son of Man. In fact, 30 times the title Son of Man is used in Matthew. And it's used with several designations. Turn to chapter 8. To be a son of a man or to be a son of humanity is to emphasize the humanity of Christ. And we see that title show up in his suffering. Chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And in a number of places, it's in context describing Jesus' weakness, his frailty, his humanity. Jesus' humanity was no mirage, it was no veneer. He was 100% fully human, and he suffered as a human. At other times, the Son of Man title refers to Jesus in his authority. Look at Matthew 9 and verse 6. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to a paralytic, get up. So he healed him to prove that he had authority. The authority over a physical ailment proved that he had authority to claim uh, and actually forgive sins. In Matthew 12, verse 8, he describes himself as Lord over the Sabbath. Uh, The Son of Man has that authority. So in some places, Jesus is describing his own humanity and his suffering and weakness. At other times, he uses the title Son of Man and joins it to his authority. But in Matthew 13, He uses the Son of Man to describe His glory as the coming King. Look at verse 41 in Matthew 13. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So whoever this Son of Man is, has something to do with the end of the age. He owns angels and he owns the kingdom. This is not just any man. This is not a a son of a man. This is somebody special. This is a reference to Daniel's prophecy about the son of man, who in Daniel's prophecy is a divine being taking the kingdom from God the Father on his throne. Clearly, the Son of Man in this context refers to Jesus' glory as God, as the coming King who will judge the earth. Jesus has other titles throughout the book of Matthew. He is called a shepherd and a bridegroom. He is the coming one and a servant and the prophet. He is the stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he is called a rabbi. An important question that every human being must ask in encountering Jesus is the question, who do you say that I am? And the identity of Christ comes to its crux in Matthew sixteen sixteen. There have been debates amongst the people about who this is. And it gets summed up in Jesus questioning Peter. Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the expected one, the one we've been waiting for. And he says, you are the son of the living God. And here, Peter is answering the the combination of identities wrapped up in this Messiah, he recognizes along with the Jews of his day that the Messiah would be the coming king in the line of David. But here Peter also answers, you are son of the living God. This is a unique title, title of deity. Jesus' response, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This remarkable statement sort of brings together all of these identity statements in the book of Matthew on the lips of Peter. This brings us to what do we do with this identity? What do you do with somebody who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the expected one that all the Old Testament was waiting for and looking for? who is the king and the son of God and the Lord and a teacher and the son of man and a shepherd and son of David and all the rest. How should he be treated? Back to chapter 2. Those magi that showed up. We saw his star in the east, they said, and we have come to worship him. It's a stunning statement. A baby is born and he is worshipped. If this baby be not God in the flesh, if this is not God with us, then this is blasphemy. Notice what does not happen in the next verse of Matthew 2. And lightning struck the Magi. The, The ground opened up and swallowed them whole. None of those things happened. There's no protest from Matthew. There's no editorial comment. In fact, the very next comment from Matthew is when Herod the king heard. The presence of the king of kings was a threat to a puny earthly king. And rightly so. But this baby was worshipped. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 2. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Some of those gifts make sense for a king. Give a king gold. Um, Give him burial spices seems a little strange. All of this, of course, is in God's plan. And you might think for a moment, well, a baby couldn't protest. I mean, if people wrongly worshipped a baby, what's the baby supposed to do? It might have been blasphemous, and Matthew's just recording it. But Matthew's very careful here. Look down at chapter 4 and verse 10. On the lips of Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted by Satan, Jesus said to Satan, go. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, Jesus himself said, only God gets to be worshipped. What has Matthew already done? Jesus has been worshipped twice. And, And that pattern's not done. Look at chapter 14. Stormy lake, Peter walks on the water, Jesus rescues Peter. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Two things to notice. They connected son of God with divinity, with being that is to be worshipped in other words they hadn't lowered the the title of son of god down to some universal thing that all of us could claim oh yes we're all children of god no this was a unique title of deity a special relationship to god where god says this is my beloved son listen to him here son of god is connected to worship Of course, this would have been a terrifying scene. Jesus is bigger and scarier and stronger and more intimidating than the great big storm that scared these fishermen who lived on the lake. And they worshipped him. You are certainly God's son. The second thing to notice here is lightning didn't strike the boat. The fishermen didn't die. Jesus didn't call them out for blasphemy. And he didn't rebuke them the way he rebuked Satan. Jesus is clearly accepting worship. Look to the end of the book, Matthew 28. This is after the resurrection. Verse 9, you have the women at the tomb... They left the tomb quickly, verse 8, with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What is Jesus' response here? Not lightning, not the ground opening up, not a rebuke. He said, do not be afraid. Jesus, again, accepting worship. Verse 17, uh, the 11 disciples on the mountain, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some were doubtful. And then in verse 19, when disciples are to be baptized, they are to be baptized in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here the Son is elevated in this Trinitarian formula for baptism under one name. Singular name, three persons. All of these things testify... To the reality that the one who is Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, the king, the son of God, the Lord, the teacher, the son of man, the shepherd, bridegroom, coming one, the servant, the prophet, the stone, the rabbi. He is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. And in his humanity, he was named Jesus, Yeshua or Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. Why was he named that? Chapter 1, because he would save his people from their sins. Speaking of sins, look at chapter 1. We have this genealogy, and this genealogy is here for a couple of reasons. It is part of the credential. This gospel, unlike the other gospels, begins with the title and then the credentials for the title. He's Messiah. Why? Because he falls into this genealogical lineage. Luke's genealogy is later in his record of Jesus' life, and it's there for a different purpose. This one is to prove to Jewish readers that Jesus fits the bill. He is credentialed as Messiah. But I want you to notice something else in this genealogy. Aside from its reason for being there, you have some interesting names. Perez is in here. Tamar is in there, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. By the way, it was not normal in the ancient Near East for women to be in genealogies, lineages. There's something interesting going on here. In fact, if you trace these names, many of these names come with stories in the Old Testament. Tamar, the the woman, we read in verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Perez came from Tamar. Interesting that Perez is in this lineage of Messiah and Tamar is there. This relationship came about as a Gentile product of adultery, prostitution, and trickery. If you were trying to highlight... Okay, we've got this expected one who's going to be our king, and we want to build up national prestige. We want to tell the world that we, Israel, are a mighty nation with a royal line and all the credentials in keeping with that which is dignified and appropriate. You wouldn't put that name in the genealogy. In fact, you read comparative genealogies of rulers in other places, and names get erased in lineages who are shameful to the line. In fact, the Egyptian rulers are famous for not recording the battles they lost, but only recording the ones that they won. This is a lost battle here. This is, this is sin in the genealogy. And it's highlighted. Look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who was Rahab? A Gentile, a prostitute. The same verse. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, who was Ruth, an outsider, a Moabitess. She was from the other side, over there, where the unclean and the Gentiles are, the the nations, the enemies. She's in the line. I think her presence in the line helps the great commission that Matthew is driving at that these Jews, by the way, sitting on top of that same mountain, looking over that lake, what they would be looking at was the place where Ruth was from, the Gentile nations. And to be commissioned at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, you are going to go make disciples of the nations. It's appropriate, even if it's shocking, that a Gentile woman shows up in the line of Messiah. That's not the way a Jew would have written this. It is the way God wrote it. Then in verse 6, you have Jesse was the father of David. Ah, good, David. We've just, you know, if you, if you go backwards from David, you, you see a line of, of, of people who sin and deceive and, and they're idolaters and polygamists and all kinds of problems. You get to David and you think, aha, hero, David and Goliath, king over Israel, the golden age, maybe the, the best character in the whole list. And yet, David's entry here is the worst entry in the genealogy. Notice how this is written. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of... I skipped over some words. I skipped over some words David might like us to skip over. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Look, Uriah is not in the genealogy, but his name gets in here. Why? Because it highlights David's worst moments. It highlights the the hero of the stories and maybe the best name in the list. And it puts his sin on display. What, What is the message in all of this? This line of people needed a savior one who could save from sin. Our Old Testament heroes are not heroes in the sense of imitable figures who always did everything right and you should pattern your life after them. Uh, no, quite the contrary in many cases. God accurately records their dirty deeds. Not so that we would have excuses to sin or, or patterns to follow in the, into those deeds, but it is a reminder of the 4,000 years of anticipation brought up zeros when it comes to the ones who could solve the sin problem because they were sinners. They were transgressors. We, of course, don't have the story of of everyone on this list, but if we knew more about them, we'd see pages of people who needed a savior. All of that leads down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary. Notice Matthew's very careful. Joseph was not Jesus' dad. That line had to be interrupted. God was sending a very specific message via virgin birth that the line through the man was going to be cut to make a demonstration something supernatural was happening here. This one who was a man is also fully God, and so a special operation has to take place. He is not going to have the sin nature that came down through humanity. That had to be interrupted. I want you to see another sinner. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 46. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, If you love those who love you... What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus here picks on a particular occupation that was looked down upon by the Jews. It it was the worst. If you were a tax collector, you were just the worst of society. You see, a tax collector was a Jew who had sold out to Rome. And I don't mean sold out like, you know indie label recording artist who all of a sudden gets a gig with Sony. I mean, a a traitorous sellout. A tax collector was a guy who, uh, as a Jew, would sit at a booth and collect taxes from his own countrymen to give to the Roman overlords. And his income was whatever he lined his pockets with. You paid exorbitant amounts of money to have the right from the Romans to have a tax collection booth. And then you just took money from your own people. It was the worst. A a sellout, traitorous, treasonous thief. Tax collectors were looked down on by all of the Jews, they were always put at the bottom of the list. Jesus was identified as as that guy who hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. You think of the worst riffraff in our society and, and that's what a tax collector was. The author of this book was a tax collector. He didn't shy away from Jesus' statements about tax collectors. In fact, he wrote him right into the gospel he recorded. You think about that. You you think about your own life. Think about what you've been rescued from or or maybe if you if you've been a Christian a long time, you might imagine sort of trace out the trajectory of the wayward ways of your own heart and you imagine what you would be apart from Christ. And you think about God's grace that melts the heart and and draws you to him. And you think back on your old life with just disdain, shame. Would you put that in the book? Your worst deeds? Your own shame? Look at chapter 9. As Jesus went on, he saw a man called Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. You know, at some point, people might have forgotten what Matthew used to be. Maybe your old life has been forgotten by friends and family. Maybe you're on a, a second chapter of your life and, and nobody remembers. Nobody knows you for the things that you did. And Matthew records it here. I was at the t- And Jesus called me to himself. It's self-effacing. It's humble. Verse 10, very next verse. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and with his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Of course, Jesus' response is fantastic. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. I came for those who know that they need a Savior. Of course, the the analogy breaks down at one level because everybody's sick. Everybody needs the physician Jesus is talking about. Everyone needed the Savior, but there were those who were convinced they didn't. And Jesus came for those who knew they were sinners and would trust him to save Look at Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is the list of the disciples. Okay, again, this is Matthew writing. How does he describe the other guys that he was working with? Simon, who is called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew. You know, he he could have said James and John, those sons of thunder. Or Peter, James, and John. You know the guys who came off the Mount of Transfiguration arguing about who was best? Those guys. Let me just list their name and their descent. And the only negative entry here, of course, is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. How does he list himself in verse 3? Matthew, the tax collector. There it is again. And it has to come off your lips with sort of a snarl when you say it. If we are to understand the disdain that it had in the first century, interestingly, you have Simon the Zealot listed in verse 4. The Zealot, the hatchet men, the the guys with the little short stubby daggers, uh, they would go around and assassinate Romans, and they would assassinate sellouts to the Romans. They would have targeted people like Matthew, the tax collector. And here they are. Jesus put them together. Matthew didn't shy away from it. Chapter 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, they say. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) Matthew, are you going to get tired of this label ever? Look at Matthew 18. This one is... Striking. I know he's quoting Jesus here, and, and so Matthew is being faithful, and Jesus lays out the, the process for church discipline. and the finality of that process is if someone doesn't t- want to turn away from their sin, still wants to call himself a follower of Jesus, Jesus, still wants to be part of the church, but, but won't repent, he is to be treated as an outsider. How is that listed? a Gentile, and a tax collector. One who doesn't belong in the inner circle and the worst of the worst. Chapter 21, verse 31. The parable of the two sons. One son says, I'll I'll do do anything, and didn't. The other son said, I'm not going to work, but then did. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Matthew's own self description, his little biographic windows into his own life, is just overwhelmed by grace. It's almost like Matthew just can't believe that he got saved. He got to be an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. He got to be friends with the king, and he was forgiven. I don't believe this is some sort of morbid retrospection on his old life. I just think he's humbled by grace. There's some key words in this book. Some key ideas to pay attention to. Discipleship is an important word to trace out. What does it mean to be a disciple? A learner of Jesus? A follower of Jesus? An imitator of Jesus? And the disciples in that great commission make disciples who make disciples? But probably the most predominant theme in the book is the idea of king and kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is used 32 times as a phrase in this gospel, and it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is a signature phrase in the gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God is used four more times. The word kingdom by itself used 19 more times. The word king shows up 22 times. Eight times humans are described as king. David, Herod three times, and others but 14 times Jesus is king or the father is king. In addition to all the specific explicit king language is the reference to Jesus as son of David, bringing to mind the royal line 15 more times. So you have near 70 references to king, kingdom, kingship, royalty in the Davidic line. You think about Jesus and the way he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6.10. He said, pray this, your kingdom come. That might be a good thematic title over the book of Matthew. Your kingdom come. In one sense, you can paint the outline of the book of Matthew through the lens of the king. In the first two chapters, you have the king's credentials. He is of the Davidic line, and he follows the genealogy through that line. His very presence becomes a threat to the earthly king, Herod, who's not of the Davidic line, who will be usurped if the true king of Israel shows up. The king's ethics come out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. He is talking about how kingdom citizens are to live. And then we see the king's power exhibited in Matthew chapter 12. Turn there for a moment. Jesus declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath goes pretty far back in biblical history goes back, of course, to Mosaic law and the the covenant at Sinai, but but even there it is prefigured in God's resting on the seventh day. It is God's gift to man for that rest. And who's in charge of it? Jesus says he's in charge of it. That means that all all the corruptions and all the traditions and all the misunderstandings and even the ability to Change the Sabbath according to his plan and in his time for his people could only belong to the one who is in charge of it. These are staggering claims. Look down at verse 22. This really is the climax of the book of Matthew. This is where everything changes. Up until this point, Jesus has been clearly teaching about who he is, what he came to do, what the kingdom is supposed to be like he even talks about the the reality that his rulership and his message would go to the gentiles and in verse 22 a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so who is Jesus king over there even the demons so that the mute man spoke and saw All the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Again, not just any son of David, not anybody in the line of Judah, but the son of David, the expected one, the king to come. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided itself is laid waste. If Satan casts out demons, Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But if by be- And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What do we learn here? The king is here. And he is doing supernatural works by the power of the Spirit. And what do those jealous, position-grabbing, power-mongers do? It's an ad hominem, right? It's an argument against the man. We can't argue that he just made a guy who was blind and couldn't talk see and speak. We can't deny that he is stronger than the demons. We've seen it with our own eyes. What are we going to do? Call him names. Insults. Of course... They got more than they bargained for in this insult. They said, oh, uh, we we have an explanation for that. He's satanic. That's demon power that he's doing those tricks by. And Jesus said, you can say anything you want against the son of man, but you will not speak about the Holy Spirit that way. That sin is unforgivable, will not be forgiven in this life, nor in the next. These guys are in big trouble. What did they do? They rejected the king on the spot. And something you need to understand about the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven went wherever the king himself went. Which is why you see the curse being reversed. It's why you see the lame walk and the blind see and the mute speak it's why you see these miracles being done. It's, it's why you see the Gentiles recognize him as king. It's why you see the demons recognize him as king. It's why eventually you'll see a Roman centurion recognize him as king. Even the, the pagan government put a plaque over the cross and it said what? King of the Jews. <laughs> but he was rejected by the people for which he came. The citizens that were supposed to be looking out for the expected one, the anointed one, the son of David. They rejected him. This really becomes the turning point. Chapter 12 is is the watershed. Then they began to test him and ask for signs. He says, you're not getting any signs except the sign of Jonah. Somebody buried for a few days. That's all you're getting. It's a sign of judgment. Judgment. And Jesus in that passage says, uh, something greater than Solomon's here. Something greater than Jonah is here. And if those people who heard those things were here, they would have repented. This is a hard-hearted response. So you have the king's credentials, the king's ethics, the king's power on display. And here in chapter 12, the king's rejection. By the way, what is Jesus' response? Chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Large crowds gathered to him. He got into the boat, sat down, and the whole crowd was standing at the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. This is a change. Public, clear teaching ministry changed to public parables and private instruction. The rest of Matthew 13, or the rest of the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 13, is a change in Jesus' ministry. No longer public and clear. They've rejected him as king. And now you have this battle for authority all the way through. This, of course, had been brewing with Herod in chapter 2. Jesus described this battle in chapter 11, verse 12. He says, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Jesus demonstrated his authority over religious leaders and over their traditions. Over Satan in chapter 4, over sin in chapter 9. Remember, he healed the paralytic and said, This proves that I have the authority to forgive sins. He proved his authority over sickness and demons and death and nature in chapter 8. And then in chapter 21, he walks into Jerusalem to be presented as king in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Of course, he weeps over the city. He comes in on the foal of a donkey. Fulfillment of Zechariah 9:9. This is just what Messiah King would do. Verse 15 of chapter 21: When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, they became indignant. That's not the response that should happen. How hard is the human heart. Jesus cleansed the temple. He walked in, offended that his father's honor was demolished. And after that, the, the chief priest, verse 23, came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus said, OK, um, let me ask you a question. And he asked him a question that's not hard. John's baptism, where was it from? Was it from heaven? They knew that they were in a pickle. They couldn't answer Jesus' question. If they admitted that John the Baptist was from heaven, they would have admitted that Jesus was Messiah. If they thought that John the Baptist wasn't a prophet, they would have angered the crowds, and they couldn't hold their position of popularity and power. So they didn't answer him. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I heal And cleanse the temple, defend my father's honor. What is their response? We have to find a way to get rid of him. Look at chapter 25 and verse 31. What does Jesus say about his own authority? When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and then he'll judge belief from unbelief. This whole issue of authority, Jesus' authority as king, culminates in that commission. Do you remember how he begins it? All authority has been given to me. Jesus has demonstrated his authority throughout the entire book. And Jesus' authority has been a threat to the earthly authorities. The ones who say they sit on the chair of Moses and tell people what to do. Authority over the demons. Authority over Satan authority over everything. And now Jesus says, authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of the nations. How would Jesus' followers do this? They would preach what Matthew preached in this gospel, the message of the king. The the credentialed king who is Messiah. The king who came, who taught the, the ethics of the kingdom, who exhibited the power of the kingdom, who was presented royally as king in fulfillment of the scriptures. And the one who was taken before the Roman soldiers and mocked. Do you remember their mockery? Put a scarlet robe on him put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They cried out, Hail, King of the Jews. They bowed before him. And then they took Jesus away to be crucified. Matthew 27, 37, Above his head they put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know him the way Matthew knew him? The Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, the King of all kings who came first as a servant to take our sins. And as a follower of Jesus, are you taking Matthew's main preaching point? God with us promises to be with us as we go to all the nations to proclaim him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this book. We thank you for its testimony to who you are, to what you did, and even to what you want us to do as your followers. May we be faithful to to love you, to know you as king, and to proclaim not only your death in the place of sin, but also your return as glorious King. We pray to do that faithfully in your name. Amen.